Thank you, Dean. We are going to spend some time in the Scriptures together now in our Jude series that we are continuing this morning. So if you have a Bible, open up your Bible to Jude. Jude is a short New Testament letter. It's found right before Revelation. It's the last little letter before the book of Revelation towards the end of your Bible. And this series we've called Contend for the Faith. And what we've tried to say is that this is a time in our society when everything is really contentious. A lot of people are fighting in the wrong ways for the wrong reasons. And so we need to look to Scripture and say, well, what is actually worth fighting for and how do we fight? And so we don't fight with the weapons of the world. We fight with faith and prayer and serving others in love. And we fight because Jesus loved us first. And so this is a spiritual battle we're engaged in and Jude is continually shaping and reshaping our worldview on what it means to really struggle and contend for things that matter. This week, we're calling the sermon Waterless. So if you will turn to verses 5 through 16, we introduced the idea last week in verse 4 that there are false teachers that are twisting grace. They're saying that God's grace means it doesn't matter how you live, which is actually the opposite of what God's grace is for. God's grace comes to us to forgive us for our sins because God cares about our sins so much that he sent Jesus. And then Titus told us really clearly in the book of Titus that God's grace not only saves us, forgives us, but it then trains us to put away our old habits. It trains us to live in a new way, to love God and to love other people. This week, we're going to get a lot of detail in verses 5 through 16 about what these false teachers look like. I grabbed hold of of one image that he gives of a waterless cloud. If you're a farmer, if you're a gardener, and you see a cloud coming, but it brings no rain, that's very dissatisfying, very frustrating. And he says a false teacher is one who promises nourishment, but does not deliver it. And what I want to do before we look at the text is I want to frame this for you. We mentioned this before, but there are basically two stances you see from Jesus and from the apostles towards sinners and false teachers. And it can be kind of confusing for us. So I encourage you to read through the Gospels and kind of see how this plays out with Jesus. But Jesus was always kind to those who were without spiritual water and needed a spiritual drink. He was always kind and gracious to those people. But to those who were false teachers that said, I can give you a spiritual drink, and then they lure people away from Jesus, He was very harsh. And so I just need to set that up because we're the kind of church that believes both in the kindness of Jesus, we always welcome people who are struggling and asking questions, but also we're a church that will hold standards of what is right and wrong. That's becoming more and more rare in our society. Oftentimes our society will tell you, you have to pick one or the other, right? You either believe in biblical standards or you're kind. You can't do both, but the scripture brings both together and we see both lived out in the life of Jesus. So as we think about the concept of being waterless, I want you to think about, am I the kind of person that's promising life, that's promising water, but not delivering it, leading people away from Jesus? Or am I the kind of person that's desperately thirsty and Jesus is coming to me like he came to the woman at the well in John chapter four and he says, what you are giving yourself to is not going to satisfy you. Jesus pleads with you, come to me, satisfy yourself in me. Remember that that dual stance, right? Because the stance here is going to be harsh. 
It's going to be hard because he's focusing in on the false teachers who are leading people away from Jesus. This is in contrast to the kind stance of John chapter 4, where Jesus invites a cult member and a sexual sinner to find their satisfaction in Christ and Christ alone. So think about where you're at. Where am I? What do I need from Jesus? What am I being tempted by? We'll read verses 5 through 16, starting verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, Swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. The parallel, if you want to study this in more detail, is in 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 Peter takes a lot of the same things that Judas said, and then he adds to it. He gives more detail. He uses a lot of the same ideas, but he also adds other things as well. Um, There are other places in the New Testament that clarify it. I encourage you, if you want to study more on false teaching and the struggle that the church always has with false teaching, is to look to the book of Titus. Also, we did a series on Titus just last year. If you go to our podcast, you can find sermons there. But as I said, there's basically two stances. There's the stance of kindness and embrace for struggling sinners. If you are not sure what you believe or why you believe what you believe, if you're struggling, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Jesus invites you to find rest, forgiveness, and satisfaction in him. But if you're one that is leading people away from Jesus and telling them that salvation is to be found in rebelling against God's authority, then the New Testament has very harsh words for you. You should be afraid. There's an interesting structure that Jude has here, and I'm going to kind of give you the structure um, and then just admit that in 
you know, 45 minutes, I'm unable to cover everything that he says, and I'm just going to give you three main points that I think you need to take home. But first of all, the structure. What we have here in Jude verses 5 through 16 is basically two sermon outlines that he's put back to back, and they followed the same structure. So verses 5 through 10, you've got three Old Testament examples, and then you've got a little connecting passage where he says, these false teachers are falling into the same trap that you saw in those Old Testament examples. And then he has an example from the literature of the day. The first section, he talks about the assumption of Moses, the thing about the archangel, Michael, and rebuking the devil and all that. So that's three Old Testament examples, a little connection with the false teachers they're struggling with, and then an example from literature of the day. Then in verses 11 through 16, he does the exact same thing. Three Old Testament examples, a little connection to the false teachers of the day, and then he ends with a connection to the literature of their day. Not biblical literature, but just literature everybody was familiar with at that time. And so what I want you to see in this dual structure is that the main idea is that false teachers will be judged. That's the scary main idea, and he uses that little analogy of waterless clouds. False teachers are those who offer nourishment, but do not deliver it. They're the ones that say, come drink here, and then they feed people poison. And Jesus and the apostles will not tolerate that because they want to protect their sheep. Jesus and the apostles love their sheep, and so they want to protect you from these false teachers. So three main points that I want to pull out. There's a lot more that we could study in this text, but three main points. Number one, gentle Jesus will destroy evil. Gentle Jesus will destroy evil. He is both gentle and kind and patient with sinners, and he will judge evil once and for all. The second point is that sexual immorality is a slow poison. Just because it seems like a great idea up front, you don't get struck by a lightning bolt when you begin to engage in sexual immorality. The New Testament continually warns us that it is a slow poison that is destructive, and we need to watch out. And then the third point, false teachers are selfishly destructive. False teachers are selfishly destructive. We talked about this last week. There are other New Testament texts we can go to and we can say, analyze the teaching of a false teacher and you know they're right or wrong based on whether they uh, teach true or false doctrine, right? And we want to continue to equip you with the scripture so that you have the ability to hear what's true and what's not true. Jude here is saying, if you're confused, just look at their life. And false teachers are always going to be selfish, And they're going to be destructive of those that they are trying to lead, manipulative of those they are trying to lead. Okay, first point, gentle Jesus will destroy evil. This is just kind of a big idea from the whole thing, from from Jude's two sermon outlines, you know, part one and part two, same structure. But big idea is Jesus is going to destroy evil. We see at the beginning and the the end, right? If you take the bookends of this section, if you start with verse five, we see here he says very explicitly, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, right? He's gentle, he's kind, he's forgiving, he's gracious, he saves people. That Jesus who saved people out of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And I just want to clarify, if you go back and look at the way he destroyed them, God saved people in the Exodus story miraculously, amazingly, He saved them and provided for them and led them out of their slavery. And then they said, we don't want to follow you. We want to go back to our slavery. 
we want to go back to the old gods that enslaved us. And so he said, okay, your will be done. You can have what you want. You can die without me in the desert. And God took the next generation into the promised land. Romans 1 and 2 gives us a parallel. Romans 1 and 2 tells us that ultimate judgment, the wrath of God, is God giving us over to our sins. Is God saying, okay, you can, you can have the sin that you want. And he allows us to be completely addicted and enslaved to it. So here it's saying, Jesus, that same Jesus that saves is also the Jesus who destroys. He's coming back to judge. Now, one little textual difference for those of you that notice these little footnote differences. Some of our translations, some of our texts have Jesus and some have Lord. I don't know if you notice that in this phrase. Um, and that's an actual variant in the Greek manuscripts. So some of them say the word Jesus, some of them say Lord. And what I want to clarify for you is if you go back to verse 4, it puts those together, the Lord Jesus, right? And so this is another example of how there might be a small little variance between the thousands and thousands of Greek manuscripts that we have of our Bible, but it is so reliable because these are the kinds of variants we have, right? Well, is it the Lord or is it Jesus? Yes, it's both, right? And so I just want to point you to, even when you see these little footnotes that say, well, it might say and, or it might say but, or it might say the Lord, or it might say Jesus. It's, it's the same point. And I just want to continue to hammer that to you because that's another kind of side assault we have on the scriptures continually. Like, well, there are these differences and who really knows what the truth is? No, we know. We know what the truth is. We just don't want to pay attention to it. That's, that's the problem. God has given us his word. It's the most reliable ancient manuscript that's ever existed. There's just no refuting that. And I'd be glad to give you more details. I know I'm making more of an assertion than an explanation here, but we have more copies, more ancient copies, more reliable copies, more agreeing copies than any other ancient text of any other religion or history. So verse 5 says, Jesus, the Lord, is going to destroy evil. And then skip all the way down to our section, bookending it down, verse 14 it's also said that the, uh, about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly for their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Do you see the repetition there? He wants you to, to get that, right? Jesus is coming back to convict, to destroy, to judge ungodliness. Um, we see clarity that Jesus is judge. We see this image of Jesus in Revelation that when he returns, he's going to be on this white horse with a robe dipped in blood with a tattoo on his thigh that says King of King and Lords of Lords and Lord of Lords and this sword of destruction comes out of his mouth. It's very clear that the same Jesus who is kind and gracious and forgiving as Second Peter 3 says God is just being patient with us, longing for us, to repent, to turn, to trust in him. That same Jesus is someday going to come back and judge all evil, destroy all evil. Jesus is both a kind and gracious Savior, and he is a judge who will destroy wickedness once and for all. The question for us is, what is our posture towards judgment? There are really two postures we can have. One is say, God, I don't want you. And then we endure the judgment of God giving us over to ourselves. That's destruction at the end of the ages, the final judgment. Or we can trust in the cross that Jesus was judged in our place. That's what the cross is. The cross is Jesus taking your place. Isn't this amazing? 
that the same God of the universe that says, I'm going to wipe out evil, someday I'm going to destroy it. There will be no more wickedness, no more abuse, no more pain, no more injustice. You will not be hurt again. It's all going to stop one day. That same God also offers us forgiveness and grace. He says, if you trust me, my wrath, my judgment will be poured out on Christ in your place. So that as Romans describes God, he's both just, someday he's going to destroy all evil, but he's also the justifier of the wicked, you and me. None of us love as we should. None of us serve as we should. None of us do everything right. And so if God were to right now judge everything, we'd all be gone. But if we trust in Jesus, he takes our place. He takes our judgment. He invites us to himself. I grabbed a picture of uh, burning trash. One of the ways that Jesus often talked about the final judgment, what's sometimes referred to as hell, is the word Gehenna. This was a place actually outside of Jerusalem where they burned their trash. It was also a place that had a lot of history of evil and wickedness. Evil things had happened there. Children had been sacrificed there. And so there was a history of evil and the need for God to destroy that, to stop evil. But there was also a real visceral reaction that people would have because they could see it and they could smell it, right? Um, Just think about disease in your life. You want it destroyed. You want it gone from your life. Just think about trash and rotten things and dirty things. You want to clean those out. You want to get rid of them. So this was their trash heap. It's where they got rid of trash and it smelled bad. Any of you ever been to the city dump before or any city dump? And you know how it has that smell that you feel like even after you left, you can't stop smelling it because it's so bad, right? It's like on your shoes. And, ugh, it's terrible. Well, that, that's what Gehenna was. Add to that, they didn't just bury their trash with big tractors like we do today. They also burned it. So there were always these smoldering fires. There was just constant burning. So it was the horrible stink of garbage plus the smell of fire and coal and ash. And Jesus says, that's what it's like to live without me. It's destructive. It's painful. God is going to destroy all evil. So so what do we do with this? God, Jesus will destroy evil. God and Jesus is a judge. A great cross-reference for you, if you don't believe it from this passage, is 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. Very clear. Echoes a lot of the same language. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. Number one, I'd say, don't be lulled into the non-enchanted worldview that is common in our world the secular, the scientific worldview that says there are no moral decisions to be made by God or the universe, right? We're all just kind of meaningless. We just exist. We just do our thing. We just have to follow our heart. Don't don't get lulled into that. We know intuitively, and the scripture is clear explicitly, that we will be judged for the moral decisions that we make. Our God is a God of judgment. So don't get lulled into that like the Matrix. Anybody seen the Matrix movie? You know, the whole idea is that everything is constructed to fool you, to trick you. The reality is there is a judgment. The other side of that is though, I'm not calling you to live a life of constant fear and constant shame. I'm calling you to recognize that all of us have things that we've done that must be judged. None of us have been as righteous, as good, as loving as we know intuitively we were made to be. And we can run to Jesus with that. Don't run away from Jesus. Often what people do is the shame 
and the hurt of the judgment they deserve is so painful, they construct another reality. That's what the false teachers do. False teachers say, let's build another world where there is no judgment. Let's say we can't handle the idea of judgment, so we'll just jettison, we'll just get rid of it. And there is no such thing as sin. There is no right or wrong. We'll just get rid of that category altogether. Christianity says, Jesus will take your judgment for you. He invites you to come to him. Run to him with your shame. Don't run away from him. And be afraid of false teachers that encourage you to run away from Jesus and to embrace your shame and your sin and say, it's not sin. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing to be bothered by. All right, second point. Sexual immorality is a slow poison. Sexual immorality is a slow poison. Um, This is particularly a struggle for our culture. I have a, a theory of culture that I think is a good biblical working theory, and that is that every society takes the Ten Commandments, and we have like six or seven that we honor and we like. And then we have two, three, maybe four that we just completely reject. In our society, we reject the commandment about adultery and sexual morality, right? We just don't like it as a culture. We like to revel in sexual immorality to the degree that we've made sex a part of our identity. And I want to encourage you that the scripture actually says that you're a morally responsible agent in the world and you can say no to some things and say yes to other things. Is it hard? Yes, it's hard. Run to Jesus when it's hard. Get friends to help you. Don't run away from it. Okay, so sexual immorality is a slow poison. This first sermon outline of Jude where he he attacks a lot of things, he's going to hit a lot of ground about false teachers and immorality and a lot of things they do. I just want to focus in on sexual immorality because that's a main theme here. Verse 5, I want to remind you, though you once knew it, Jesus who saved the people out of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That's his first example, is an Old Testament example about the Exodus people. Then he goes on to a next example, verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, a simple reading of this would just be a simple, like, you know, rebellion of Satan and his angels that's kind of alluded to in Scripture. That's what this is talking about. Most people, especially the first century commentators, second century commentators, people that read the ancient literature, most believe this is actually talking about Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 is this passage about the Nephilim. Have you ever heard of this? Nephilim is this weird passage where it talks about these giants and these heroes of the old days. A lot of people think this is talking about kind of great men that the legends turned into the stories of the Greek gods and stories like that. Um, And so this this little passage that doesn't give us a lot of detail, a lot of the Jews and a lot of the ancient literature was saying what actually happened is the angels came down to earth, fell in sin, rebelled against God, possessed human beings, married with humans, reproduced this great race that was advanced, and there were giants and all the stuff that God was fighting against, caused more sin. In Genesis 6, it's the prelude to the flood. It's the kind of like match that lit all the horrible sin where God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to destroy the whole world and just save a few righteous people. And so just want to throw that out to you. That's what a lot of commentators think this believes. And then that's it. I'm not going to spend a lot more time on it. Okay, so I'm just, I'm just kind of dropping that on you and we're going to move on. But there was also sexual sin involved there in Genesis chapter 6. The next point is clear. Verse 7, 
just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Uh, The wording is a little complicated there. He's basically saying there was this temporary fire. Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by fire, and that's an example of the eternal fire of hell, the eternal judgment that's coming. And they're particularly called out for, it says, indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Now, I mentioned this last week. The Bible has a consistent sexual ethic. It's the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. Even if you strip away the ceremonial law, we still have a consistent morality that is consistent between the Old and the New Testament. And if you struggle to make sense of that, I'd love to help you with that. Love to help you connect those dots a little bit more. But the New Testament is unapologetic. There is, there is an ethical standard for us. And look at, look at verse 8. It says, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So he's saying there's this whole pile of sins they're engaged in, and they often feed each other, right? When we reject authority, we're going to indulge more in the sins of our flesh, be it sexual immorality or any other sin. He talks about blaspheming the glorious ones. Most think what he's talking about here is just speaking ill of of heavenly creatures or of heavenly things in general because of the next uh, example he gives in verse 9 as well. And also this strange little thing he says, relying on their dreams. Can God speak to us through a dream? Sure, God, God can do whatever he wants to, but we're always subjecting it to his word. How do we know the random things that happen to us, whether to think good or bad or what's true and what's not true? Well, we read God's word. God's word is the authority in our lives. These people will rely on their dreams in the sense of saying, hey, well, I had a dream and, and now I know it's okay to indulge our sin instead of turning from it, right? And so they're false teachers that are leading us away from Jesus and to our sin. And then the final example is from the literature of their day. It was a little book called The Assumption of Moses. Others think this might have been from another book. There are a lot of books that went around in the first century that weren't a part of the Bible, uh, but they had biblical characters. And so this is sometimes confuses people because the Bible will often quote literature that's not the Bible itself, right? Paul did this. He quoted Greek poets. And here Jude is quoting a couple of books from that day. One here, The Assumption of Moses. There's another one at the end of the story, The Book of Enoch. Some of you may have heard of before. So these are just first century books that a lot of people would have been reading, stuff they were familiar with. It's just like I might quote a movie or a book and say, hey, this, this proves the same point as Scripture. I'm not saying that movie is Scripture when I quote it, right? Does that make sense? And so here we've got Jude doing the same thing. He says, verse 9, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Basically what he's saying from this story, and you know, guys smarter than me have read a bunch of these old stories. He's saying that Michael, the archangel, right? So like he's got the greatest authority next to Jesus, still doesn't even rebuke the devil based on his own authority. But he says, may the Lord rebuke you. And this is characteristic of the kind of humility that we should have and real teachers of the Word of God should have. Rather than investing our authority in ourselves, hey, look at who I am, they're, they're pointing to the Lord and to His authority. And so here we see from this strange little story from the first century, Michael 
showing humility and saying, may the Lord rebuke you. So verse 10, but these people blaspheme all they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So let me just zero in on that last section here. I said before, sexual immorality is a slow poison. We are not unreasoning animals. Human beings are different than animals. Our culture today will teach you that we are animals and we are out of control. We cannot control our urges. The scripture teaches that you can control your urges. Do you need God's supernatural help? Yes. Do you need the help of friends? Yes. Do you need accountability? Yes. Maybe you need therapy? Yes. Like, we need a lot of help, but we're not animals. Do you hear that? This is so important for us to know. We can make moral choices. So this brings us back to what is the biblical sexual ethic? This is it. Either be celibate or be committed to a lifelong heterosexual marriage. That is very narrow. When Jesus was talking to his disciples about these things, they were like, man, Jesus would be better to not even get married. He was like, well, maybe. It is narrow. It is strict. It is hard. But this is God's good design for us. We're not animals. And so this is, that's probably the most controversial thing I've said today, right? That the Bible calls us to a difficult ethic, but that we can actually keep it. We can actually maintain it. It is a standard that is realistic and good. Working outside that is a slow poison that destroys us. Indulging in sexual immorality is destructive. Think about God's summary or Jesus' summary of the law in the New Testament. It's love God and love people. Everything else is pulling you away from that. Now, I also want to speak kindly and patiently to those of you that are, that are caught, that are struggling. There is hope for you. You can get help. We'd love to help you celebrate recovery as a great ministry that will help people disentangle themselves from these sins that they're ensnared by through the gospel, through trusting in Jesus and finding community that will help them to recover. Um, Romans 1 and 2, Paul does a really interesting thing when he talks about sexual immorality. He kind of tricks us a little bit. It's almost like a rope-a-dope. In Romans chapter 1, I encourage you to go back and read this. In Romans chapter 1, Paul condemns sexual immorality and the other ways in which we sin in very open, irreligious ways, right? The way that non-religious people sin. And he singles out sexual immorality. says this really is a problem. And that the wrath of God is poured out by giving people over to their sin. Your will be done. But then he turns in Romans chapter 2 and he says, Oh, and you religious people that don't struggle with the same big sins, you're just as guilty. Do you hear that? So this is kind of encouraging for those that are struggling with sexual sin who might feel like you are uniquely shameful. Paul singles out religious bigotry judgmentalism and backbiting and says it is just as problematic and just as destructive to human flourishing, just as sinful before God. If you don't believe me, go read Romans 1 and 2 yourself. So we need to have a sense of balance when we talk about these things. On the one hand, our culture is totally out of control and thinks sexual immorality is no big deal. On the other hand, we don't want to run to a kind of traditionalism that is like, that's the worst sin and we're better than you are. You know, We don't want to run to this kind of religious judgmentalism that singles it out is any greater than anything else. So I just want to clarify, that's the Bible stance. All sin is sin, but, but it is an issue to be dealt with. 
Here's GBC, Grace Bible Church's statement on sexuality. It's in our constitution if you want to find this. The leaders of Grace Bible Church are grieved that some people feel less welcomed by churches than others. We're genuinely grieved. If you've struggled in this area and you've wondered if you would be, be accepted, we're grieved by that. We affirm that all people need God's grace, regardless of sexual desires. All people universally need God's help, God's grace, and community. It goes on and says, all humans struggle with a variety of desires. Following Jesus regularly entails resisting human desires. Do you hear that? Part of what Jesus encourages us into when he invites us to follow him is to resist our desires and make decisions about our desires and say, this one's good and this one's bad. This one is going to lead to flourishing. This one's going to help me love God and love neighbor. This one will not. So following Jesus regularly entails resisting human desires. We are a community seeking to submit our competing desires to our ultimate desire, which is union with Christ. So we're a community of people that all have desires that we are trying to put away. We all bring that to the table, trying to pursue Jesus, trying to make him our ultimate desire. We believe that it is dehumanizing to compel anyone to found his or her identity on sexual desires or gender preference. You hear that phrase? Dehumanizing. Jude said, they're like, they're like animals. Can't even control themselves. When you are taught by false teachers that your sexual desires are so important that they form who you are, I want you to understand that's dehumanizing. God says, I've got more for you. Jesus loves you. And again, hear, hear the Jesus who talked to the woman at the well, who his disciples couldn't even believe he was talking to because she was a cult member involved in sexual sin. And Jesus showed her dignity and kindness. That is the stance of the church. The harshness here is for those that would pull people like her away from Jesus and say, indulgence is your way to freedom. That's not freedom. Come to a Jesus who died for you. Don't follow a sin that wants to make you its slave and destroy you. Sexual sin is a slow poison. So how do, how do we live this out? First of all, recognize that this is a big deal in our culture. The culture... Um, we're getting close to a time when it will be illegal for me to say some of these things, right? That's, that's, that's on the table. Many people are saying it should be. It should be illegal for me to say that sexual sin is sin, that that is hate speech. That, that's on the table in our society right now. So just recognize that we have a society that's pushing hard against this. And recognize also the kind of both sides of the horse that you can fall off onto. One side of the horse is falling off into hey, I keep standards, but I'm a jerk about it, right? That's one side of the horse that we can fall off of. And then the other side of the horse we can fall off of is, we want to be kind, therefore let's get rid of all standards, right? We want to balance both the kindness of Jesus who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. The kindness of Jesus, the invitation to all of us that struggle with also the judgment of, of evil's going to be judged. And this is destroying you and you've got to stop. You've got to stop. This is not helping you to love God or love other people. Um, 1 Corinthians 5 makes it clear that we are not to judge the world, but as believers, we are to judge ourselves, right? 
So we have friends that don't pretend to follow Jesus and they're, they're caught in sexual sin. We can encourage them. We can help them. We can try to lead them to something better, but we aren't to judge them with the same harshness. Again, here, this harshness, this toughness that Jesus and Jude and the apostles give is to false teachers that are within the church saying, oh, I've got something better than Jesus. They come into the church founded on Jesus and say, hey, let's indulge sin and that's the way you'll find salvation. So we need to recognize that. Three ways I think we really struggle with sexual immorality in our culture. Again, I think the standard is either celibacy or lifelong heterosexual covenant marriage. Three, so there's a million ways we can fall outside of that category, right? But three ways we really uh, struggle. One is pornography. This epidemic in our culture. I want to appeal to you guys that think it doesn't hurt anybody because it's just on a screen. It is. It's destructive to your ability to love people and your ability to love God, and you're also enslaving the people, literally enslaving the people in that industry. It is destructive. You, you need to be realistic and come face reality with how destructive it is. If you need help, come to Jesus. He'll help you. We have a community of, of strugglers here that will help you. Secondly, uh, we've got the struggle of romance. Um, this one might sound a little weird, but this is kind of a sneaky one. Our culture builds so much on romance and makes so much of romance. And just generally, I'd say this is like following your feelings. And the moment you don't feel in love with someone anymore, then you're not in love. Well, no, love is a decision. Love is something you do. It's a lifelong self-sacrificial service. That's what love is biblically. Love is not feelings. Now, side point. Those of you men that are on a feeling deficit that don't believe in romance, if you're married, you have to do some romance, okay? You have to woo your wife. That's part of it. What I'm talking about is our cultural cult of romance that makes it everything. Don't make it everything. Do you need to sprinkle some in your marriage? Yes, you do, okay? I can talk to you more about that later. And finally, homosexuality. We're at a place in culture, again, that's really confused about this, that says, well, the two options are either we can endorse homosexuality as a good thing, or we can be jerks about it and say it's the most evil thing ever. Romans 1 and 2 is clear. It's a sin like any other sin. There are all kinds of sin. I want to appeal to you if you're struggling with homosexual temptation, please don't disrespect the temptation of other people. I think this is really common. What folks that struggle with homosexuality do is they say, you don't understand it's different for me. I've got to give in to this temptation. This is a different kind of temptation. 1 Corinthians 10 says, there's no temptation that's come that's not common to man. Let me read it and make sure I don't mangle this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. What is he saying there? Idolatry is connected to our temptations. The things we're lured by are the things that we think are false saviors that will save us, right? So you don't understand my temptation is different. I'm, I'm lured by this. I've got to give in to it because it can save me. By giving in, I can be saved. Paul says, flee from idolatry. Only Jesus will save you. That, that's my appeal here. Sexual immorality is a slow poison that promises to be refreshing water, but it will actually destroy you. So this has mostly been about us running from sexual immorality. What I want you to see here is false teachers will use their position and their power and their leadership to manipulate people into indulging their own flesh. That's what Jude is saying. 
So again, you can look at a teacher and evaluate the truth. Are they teaching from the Bible? Are they lifting up Jesus? Those are all good markers of a good or a bad teacher, right? You want a good teacher that will rest his authority in the Scripture. We'll talk about Jesus. A bad teacher won't do that. But Jude says, in case you get confused, because false teachers are really good with their words, right? They're really good at, at doing magic and manipulating you and making you feel like they're teaching from the Bible and feel like you're talking about Jesus. But if you see them luring you or others towards sexual immorality, run, flee, get away. Do not trust them. Do not allow them to, to rope you in. Do not tolerate immoral teachers. Okay, last point. False teachers are selfishly destructive. And this fits with that second point. They, they can be manipulative, right? Um, these are leaders. Paul talks about this in Galatians. It's not so much that they want to care for you as a follower. They just want more followers, right? And so watch out for these marks of a false teacher. Many of you, because it's a transient city, are going to go to multiple other churches over your lifetime. As you look for teachers, look for people, look for leadership who love each other, serve each other, are sacrificial or humble and are not trying to manipulate you. They don't just want to be in charge, but they want to lead you to Jesus. They want to serve up the gospel for you. So this is the second little sermon outline. He follows the same pattern here where he gives three Old Testament examples. He talks about the false teachers of the day, and then he gives a final uh, example or illustration from the literature of their day. He says, Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So Balaam's error, uh, abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. So this is like they're selfish. They saw an, an opportunity to like make more money or get more followers. And so then they disobeyed, just like Balaam. This is a reference in Numbers. This Old Testament false prophet, false teacher. He's saying it's the same kind of thing. They're pursuing gain. They're pursuing advantage. And so they mislead people so they can have more money, so they can have more stuff, so they can um, lead others astray. Korah's rebellion is a really interesting story from the Old Testament. Korah believed in this truth that all people of God are all supposed to be uh, of equal dignity and supposed to, to minister and be important people in the kingdom of God. We sometimes call this the priesthood of all believers, right? We all have a role in the ministry. And so Korah said, this beautiful truth is so true, I'm going to cause a rebellion and destroy the current leadership. We can't have any leaders at all. If we have any leaders at all, that means there is no priesthood of all believers, right? So this is often what false teachers do. They take one truth and they wreck all the other truths with it. Do you see that? And so you hear what they're saying and you're like, well, that truth is in Scripture. That thing they're saying is true. And they're destroying everything else in their path. Korah is a great example of that. Verse 12 says, these are hidden reefs at your love feast. Love feast was first century language for either the potluck that went along with a communion meal or just the church gathering itself. So a love feast, right? Um, a gathering of love. That's how they would talk about their church services. Sounds a little weird to us. You know, we want to be a little more uh, cool and distant than that. But this is how they talked about getting together as a church. And he said, they're hidden reefs at those events. What does that mean? So if you're in a boat and you're going through the water, it looks like calm water. You can't see anything. There can be a sandbar or a reef under the surface that you don't see, and then it wrecks your ship. That's what he's saying. They're, they're like lying in wait to take advantage of you, like Jesus talked about wolves in sheep's clothing. As they feast with you without fear, they're shepherds feeding themselves. A shepherd's always an example of someone who goes without for the sake of his flock, who's self-sacrificial, 
who serves the, the dumb, humble sheep, right? Who cares about their good more than his own. But these leaders, these shepherds reverse that and want to just take advantage of the others. I grabbed a picture here of a wolf, going back to Jesus' language in Matthew 7, a wolf tearing up a leg of lamb there, right? I'm, I know, I'm sorry, it's gross. I'm purposefully trying to gross you out, right? That's what Jude is trying to do. He's trying to give you images that if you were a first century person that was more in touch with animals than we are, you'd immediately have a visceral reaction, right? Shepherds feeding themselves. These are like Jesus talks about wolves in sheep's clothing. They are destructive. And then he uses my main uh, image that I've used for the sermon title, waterless clouds. My wife and I were talking about this because um, just a cloud seems like a great thing in Texas, right? Why? Because it provides shade. So we love waterless clouds. That's awesome. We can go outside. We can have shade. No rain. Good deal. But if you were a farmer or a gardener, as most people were in the first century, and you saw a cloud that didn't feed the ground and help your crops to grow and help you eat and survive, you'd be disappointed by that. Saying that's what a false teacher is. They offer nourishment. They're selling nourishment and then not providing, right? They're saying, I'll give you water, and then they give you poison. They're waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn. They're, they're promising fruit, but there is no fruit, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, right? Ancient people would navigate by the stars in their fixed positions and their predictable patterns. A wandering star, a planet, or a shooting star would have been much harder to navigate by. That's what he's talking about. They don't guide you. They confuse you. For whom the, gl- the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So again, this threat of judgment. Not Uh, culturally uh, relevant, but something that we should be genuinely afraid of. Jude 14, now he quotes Literature of Their Day, the Book of Enoch. So this is another kind of Literature of Their Day book, a a weird religious book that didn't get put into the Bible. We don't believe it's Bible, but we believe it says some true things, right? I like to read C.S. Lewis, but we're not putting him in the Bible. I like to read Tim Keller. We're not putting him in the Bible. There are religious books, religious stories we read that are helpful but not the same thing as Scripture. This is one of those in the ancient world. It was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all of their ungodly deeds. He's going to go on and repeat that again. We read that before. And here in verse 16, he ends with this. They're grumblers. They're malcontents. They're following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So one more application point. Watch out for leaders that show favoritism so that they can get ahead. A a weird way that I guard against this in my own life, this is not something that every preacher should do. I'm just using it as an example to show you that I'm making an effort to not be like this, right? Is I don't know what you give. Now, some ministers do, and that's fine. It's probably not a snare for them. For me personally, I'm afraid that I would start worrying about it too much, right? So I'd just rather not know. I don't know what you give. I don't look at that stuff. We have bookkeepers and other elders and other leaders that look at that stuff. I don't want to be caught into that trap of giving you some kind of favoritism if you give more and turning the church in a different direction because that's what the people that give a lot of money say, right? I don't, I don't even want to go there. So that's, that's one of the ways I try to apply that again. That's not a biblical command, the only way to apply it. Backwardsly here, we just see false teachers don't give a rip at all. 
false teachers show favoritism so they can gain an advantage, so they can enrich themselves, so they can get ahead. Don't fall for salvation by trusting in a leader, right? These leaders have a, a dangerous influence in that they are they're charismatic personalities. They tell you what you want to hear. They emotionally manipulate you. Remember, you, you are not saved by following a leader. You're saved by Jesus. And so I've seen this repeatedly over the years. There will be leaders in your life that you feel this incredible like bond of guilt and connection you can't let go. If they're not helping you to grow in Jesus, and if they're not living a moral life of following Jesus, do not follow them. Let go. Get rid of them. Say goodbye. If we ever become a church where we're platforming people that don't point to Jesus but point to themselves instead, leave. Run away. May, may God destroy this church if that's what it ever becomes. We want to be a church. You want to be someone who follows Jesus by having leaders help you see more of Jesus and less of themselves. One poor beggar showing other poor beggars where to find bread, right? I'm not the bread. Jesus is. No leader should have that power over your life. Look for churches. Again, many of us are transient. We'll be going to other churches throughout your lifetime. Look for churches that will help you to learn the truth, but also where the leadership is living the truth out for you. So as we conclude, we'll stop here again. Remember, he says these are waterless clouds. These are clouds that offer nourishment. They offer life. They offer water, and then they don't deliver. And there's a stance again and again throughout Scripture where Jesus, the apostles, have a harshness with these kinds of false teachers because they're leading you away from Jesus. I want to end by coming back one more time to the stance that Jesus had to the, the poor woman at the well who was dying of thirst. She was a, a part of the wrong race. She was a part of the wrong neighborhood. She was trapped in addictive cycles of sexual sin. She was a part of a cult. And Jesus' posture towards her was a posture of kindness and invitation. He said that he could give her, he can give you living water. Jesus is the one that can provide what we're looking for. None of these other sins, none of these other leaders, but Jesus and Jesus alone. He invites you to come to him and find rest for your soul. Let me pray. God, thank you that you are good to us in Christ. Thank you that you give us grace through your word. We pray that this would make us a people that, that loves you more and loves others more. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.